Rivian plans to double production at its plant in Normal to get the electric vehicle maker out of the red. Our objective continues to be driving towards profitability and our prudent deployment of capital. And that means more cost-cutting. That story next on WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on today's show, a biologist explains how 3D animation helps their research. We show complexity and dynamics, and I think that's often interpreted as being beautiful. A new mental health crisis center opens in Bloomington. When you walk in, you kind of have a sense of, I'm where I need to be. And Illinois craft cannabis businesses are worried they'll fail before getting a chance to even start. All that after a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Ryan Fuller and his mother Stephanie. She just put my mind at ease. She's like, hey, there's lots of kids that have hearing aids. It's so much different than what you remember and just really made me feel comfortable mom to mom. Ryan and Stephanie's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. Thanks for listening. The Rivian plant in Normal will be getting a lot busier this year and next. The electric automaker says its production target for 2023 is 50,000 vehicles. That's double what it made last year. Rivian's top officials explain how they plan to do that on a quarterly earnings call with investors Tuesday. WGLT's Ryan Denham, who's been covering Rivian for years, was on that call as well, and he joins me in studio. He's got a recap of what they talked about. Hey, Ryan, thanks for joining us on Sound Ideas in studio. Hey, John. So the uh, normal plant, all right, it's getting busier. How much busier? Well, right now, the, the plant is, is capable of making 65,000 of what they call R1 vehicles. So those are the, the pickup trucks and the SUVs. They can make 65,000 of them every year. Uh, they want to bring that up to 85,000 by the middle of next year. Um, so to achieve that, they're actually going to be shutting down production for a week later this year on purpose and for several weeks in early uh, 2024 to incorporate some new technology in, into the plant that will, in part, increase overall uh, capacity. And these numbers I'm throwing around are interesting because I mean, the plant theoretically has room to make 150,000 vehicles uh, a year. Obviously, they're not anywhere close to that right now. Well, let me ask you this, and why, why isn't the plant already at full capacity? Uh, you know, several reasons for that. Um, supply chain issues are, are probably near the top of that list. The, you know, microchip, microchips and all these things that go into making a vehicle have been in, in short supply as we come out of the pandemic. It's been impacting car companies all over. Um, Rivian had a supplier day recently where they invited all the suppliers to, to the plants. And they say things like that have given them you know, better visibility into um, the supply chain problems and makes it a little easier to navigate. But it's still a problem. Um, here's RJ Scaringe, who is the founder and CEO of the company. Apologies for the audio quality. This is from like a, this investor's conference call. So, you know, those are not known for audio fidelity. It is component supply. And that's on the R1 line today. If you think about the, the commercial vehicle line, we're still running a single shift there. So it's, you know, we, we wish we could have the components be able to fully run the plant uh, across all lines, across multiple shifts, uh, but that's not the case. 
you know, another part of it is that it just takes time to learn how to bid, build vehicles and to build them increasingly quickly or increasingly fast. Um, you know, I, I think hiring is another component. We're up to, I think, about 7,100 employees in normal right now. Uh, in the fall of last year, Rivian added a second production line for, for those R1 vehicles. So that's also speeding things up. Okay, you were on this investor's call yesterday. What, what was the biggest takeaway for you that maybe Rivian and their leaders were trying to send? Well, if you were playing a drinking game and you were listening for the word profitability and profit and uh, you know during the call yesterday, you would have been drinking a lot because <laughs> profitability was the the, name, the the number one term that they were throwing around. Here is uh, Claire McDonough, who is the chief financial officer at Rivian. Our objective continues to be driving towards profitability and our prudent deployment of capital. Obviously, there's a lot of red ink that is to be expected in, in, in the early years of a company like Rivian. It, you know, it's spending billions of dollars to, to ramp up production here at Normal, to build a, a second plant in Georgia. Uh, and that red ink is, is those are big numbers. Uh, Rivian lost $6.8 billion in 2022. Right. But at some point, you have to become profitable, right? What's the plan? So the Normal plant is part of that plan. Um, by making more vehicles at more hours of the day and increasingly fast, that you know lowers the uh, the amount of money they're they're pouring into it, increases the margin, uh, all that. So here's here's Clara McDonough again, the, the CFO of the company. The most significant driver continues to be our production levels. Producing highly vertically integrated vehicles at low volumes on lines designed for higher volumes means we currently carry more overhead per vehicle produced. This impact has and will continue to be magnified during the ramp of our second shift of production as we introduce new technologies. Okay, so producing more vehicles is part of it, but cost controls and cost cutting is another part of it. Uh, last month, there are reports that Rivian was going to be cutting 6% of its workforce. Uh, Company-wide, there's a kind of a cost cutting and efficiency program underway. All of this, you know, obviously raises the question of, okay, so when? When would Rivian uh, turn a profit? And I think it's, you know, you, wa you want to look here to the experience at Tesla. So it took the, the company Tesla, which is, I think, widely perceived to be the pioneer in EVs, took that company 18 years to turn a full year of profit. Um, and I certainly don't want to um, come off as an apologist for, for Rivian, but I think it's, it's important to note that uh, it's not the only company that, uh, in town that is, uh, has some red ink. Stay Farm. Uh, just this week, we were reporting that they posted an operating loss for their property and casualty companies last year, uh, an operating loss of $8.3 billion. So obviously a different situation there. State Farm is privately held. Rivian is publicly traded. But big companies do lose money. Why do you think it matters whether or not a giant company makes a profit, loses money or whatever? Well, Rivian has, as I said, 7,100 employees in normal right now. That's the second largest employer in town. Just a kind of an interesting anecdote on that. Uh, they're actually planning to add more parking on the south end of the plant to accommodate all those employees, cut down on, on how long it takes them to shuttle into the plant, that kind of thing. Um, just kind of funny to think about how much parking there's already there and they have to add more. Um, you know, up to now, the job cuts that Rivian has, has announced have not significantly impacted the plant. But as we all know, the at this point, the, the fate of our local economy depends in part on how Rivian does. And what that means is we have to look at demand for EVs. Is that going up or down? How the stock market is valuing EVs, those kinds of things. But I still think this community is still um, 
you know, coming to terms with the idea of, of one of its biggest employers being a publicly traded company that has to face this sort of, are you going to make a profit scrutiny every, every quarter when these, these investor calls come around? That's uh, WGLT Digital Content Director Ryan Denham, who's been covering Rivian for many years now. Ryan, thanks for the update. Thanks, Sean. Sound Ideas, WGLT's news magazine, is on WGLT. Biologists try to understand complex submolecular processes by creating movies in their heads. If X happens, then Y will look like this. Well, they're getting more help with that these days from Janet Iwasa. She's a biochemist at the University of Utah who uses 3D animation software to visualize how cells and even smaller bits of biomaterial work. Iwasa will talk about animating molecular machines next Tuesday at Illinois State University. In this interview with WGLT's Charlie Schlenker, Iwasa talks about how being able to visualize a complex protein helps scientists do research. Part of it had to do with the fact that in biology, we often depict pretty complex processes using like circles and squares and arrows and really oversimplifications of what we think is actually happening. But using 3D animation, we're able to really take advantage of all the different data we have about what proteins actually look like, their shapes, their sizes, and also ideas about how they might be moving within a cell. How much did entertainment industry software have to be customized and tweaked to give researchers something meaningful and useful? The animation software can be basically used as is. It's kind of more, you know, the types of things that we're modeling and that we're um, we're importing is scientific data uh, rather than, you know, like a fish or a superhero or something like that. I'm surprised it was that robust. Were you when you first got into it or? Yeah, the 3D animation software, I mean, you can really animate anything you want. It's quite flexible. And so, you know, um, I guess, yeah. So for us, we would import proteins and different kind of cellular structures and animate those. And some of the different tools that we use, I guess, um, you know, we have to kind of think about what tools would best be used for animating a different process. Uh, But yeah, I think, you know, the tools are all there. How much does it help researchers? The animations are used in a variety of ways, Um, sort of the most basic level. They can be used to to educate, to educate different audiences. So students, um, they're used to communicate research to different audiences. Um, So they've been used in museum exhibits and television, but also in lectures. And the animations, I think the way that we're kind of the most interested in using them is for communication and exploration. A lot of our collaborators use these animations to depict a specific hypothesis, and they use them to communicate to other scientists. It's often pretty clear that, you know, scientists think differently about how a process might proceed. And that's made pretty clear after they watch an animation that shows how one of their colleagues might think of it. Yeah, but for instance on that, would you? Some aha moments that researchers have had by looking at at visualizations. So when we're animating a process, the first step involves really kind of an interview, uh, basically asking our collaborators, what is the process? Who are the different players? And and asking them a lot of different questions about the number of proteins, how they're moving around. With that kind of process of really kind of digging into what this animation might look like often brings up 
a lot of questions and a lot of uncertainty. And so that can be really interesting for the researchers to realize that there's there's some unanswered questions there. And there's also things that happen during the animation stage where we're bringing in a lot of different molecules and trying to make them move according to the way that our collaborators think they should be. And sometimes things just don't fit. Uh, things don't fit together. And that can be often informative as well. And, and in the past, it's gotten our collaborators to look back at their data and collect some more and have some new findings. It's definitely happened where we've had collaborators who we've talked to about animations and gotten to the point where we're trying to plan out uh, an animation and asking them, you know, how many of these proteins are there? How many of these proteins? What does this one do? How When does this one come in? And just that process of asking them about that has gotten them to be like, actually, we don't know. We've got to do some more experiments or we haven't thought about that. How does this get translated into applied research instead of uh, pure research? So we have animations on things like HIV and SARS-CoV-2, which have immediate benefits in understanding, for example, how vaccines work, how new vaccines or new treatments might be used. So a lot of our animations have a direct relevance to human health and disease. There's the scientific and then there's the aesthetic. These are beautiful animations. These are beautiful visualizations. How much does that reward you? Yeah, I guess often the goal of creating the animation has less to do with aesthetics than it does, you know, we're really focused on trying to tell a clear story and telling the science accurately. And I think, you know, this comes out as an aesthetic choice. Um, but really, I think what happens is that we show complexity. Um, we show complexity and dynamics, and I think that's often interpreted as being beautiful. University of Utah biochemist Janet Iwasa says she got interested in animation as a graduate student. She'll speak at ISU's Schrader Hall. Tuesday evening, she spoke with WGLT's Charlie Schlenker. This is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. McLean County has a new mental health crisis center. Health and government officials hope the facility will be better integrated with other types of care than the crisis center the county opened three years ago. McLean County Center for Human Services opened the Behavioral Health Urgent Care Program in January. That was at its offices in downtown Bloomington. It hosted an open house this afternoon. Center for Human Services CEO Joan Hartman says the center is staffed with a counselor and peer support to help people in distress, set up a plan, and seek treatment options if necessary. In this edition of Sound Health, Hartman tells WGLT's Eric Stock the crisis center follows what's called the living room model of mental health care. It's really designed around the concept of walking into somebody's living room rather than walking into an emergency room. And the difference there is that when you walk into someone's living room, the idea is, is that you'll feel comfortable and you'll feel at home and you'll feel a sense of safety. And so that's what we have worked on to design in our um, remodel is to make sure that it that when you walk in, you kind of have a sense of I'm I'm where I need to be. Will this be able to survive financially? with enough public aid reimbursements and the money that you're getting from the county? Um, yes, I think so. It, it, um, they're very successful in other communities. 
Now, whether or not we can sustain it 24-7, 365, that's going to be the question. Um, and whether or not that's even needed for the community, I think, is something that we'll have to monitor um, and just keep track of as we go forward. How would you characterize the need in McLean County at this point for urgent care behavioral health program? Well, um, we had, or um, the county had, um, a company called TriWest come in and do a an analysis of our crisis system. And through that analysis, which is available on the county website um, for people who are interested, um, what we found is, is that there is... Uh, a significantly high need for a program like this in the county um, and that we actually provide more crisis services than um, typical in a community our size. Any idea why that might be? That is an excellent question and one that I think as a behavioral health system that we're really uh, analyzing and taking a look at. I think that, you know, part of it is the fact that we do have the university students who come in and and out, which kind of has different needs, although the university does an excellent job of taking care of their own. But um, I think that one of the things that we have found um, also is, is that people really didn't, during COVID, didn't really access behavioral health services. And so I think what we're seeing is kind of a backlog of um, people who really during COVID developed or um, had symptoms that increased um, due to the stress and the anxiety related to, you know, the whole pandemic, along with feeling very isolated. And I don't know that as a community, we have really gotten back to normal because I think people still feel pretty isolated. Have you seen that in terms of the number of clients that you've had in the first two months? I think that because we haven't done a lot of marketing around it, just based on the fact that we have such limited hours, we really wanted to be able to market it to the community with more robust services in terms of hours of of availability. And so we haven't seen, you know, a huge amount of people coming in through the doors, although we do see that in our other programs at the center. Um, We have seen um, a significant increase in the number of people who are trying to access psychiatry and our recovery support programs and counseling. Joan Hartman from the McLean County Center for Human Services and WGLT's Eric Stock. The Behavioral Health Urgent Care Program is open weekdays from 5 in the afternoon until 1 in the morning and Sundays from 1 to 8 p.m. Hartman says the center hopes to expand to 24-7 care but has not been able to hire enough workers. Support for WGLT health coverage comes from Carl Health. You can count on Carl as your partner in health care. Information at carl.org. This is Sound Ideas on WGLT. Craft cannabis growers, transporters, and infusers in Illinois can breathe a sigh of relief, at least for now. They were supposed to be ready to start business yesterday, but the State Department of Agriculture issued an extension. It now gives these businesses until next year to get things in order. As Alex Stegman from Illinois Public Radio tells us, some see it as a reprieve, but most are still worried. Illinois' craft cannabis industry is pretty small, so an event full of people in it is almost like a family reunion with vibes. 
The Illinois Independent Craft Growers Association and the Social Equity Empowerment Network put on a symposium this week to bring everyone together to share stories, get advice, and hopefully make connections. But the event at the South Shore Cultural Center in Chicago was like the type of family reunion with a big elephant in the room. Instead of worrying about when their uncle will make an inappropriate joke, the Kraft Cannabis family wonders about deadlines and whether they'll survive. The 2024 extension is good news for people like Crystal Anderson. Oh my God, yes, it's a big relief for us. And it's not that we have stopped working because we're still trudging along and doing things that we have to do to, um, to stand this business up. A nurse anesthetist by day, Anderson's trying to open a dispensary in DeKalb in a craft grow facility in Kankakee. She also has a transporter license. It was still a brighter room than it might have been a month ago before the extension. Depending on when you got your license, you now have until either February or December of next year. The state says COVID-19 and supply chain issues led to the extension, even though just weeks prior, there were no plans for such a move. Like many in the social equity cannabis space, Anderson has had problems fundraising, but she says she's close. It's almost like the Illinois market has dried up you know, when it comes to funding, um, but you know, we've had some good leads. Um, my group have, and we're just hoping that you know they follow their you know fall in place, and we're able to do it. Illinois created these social equity craft licenses to help people with past marijuana offenses break into the industry on a smaller scale, particularly Black and Brown folks. But access to capital and money from state loan programs are difficult to get. Felicia Royster co-founded the Social Equity Empowerment Network, or SEEN, in Chicago. It tries to address the racial wealth gap by fostering more Black-owned businesses. Royster appreciates the deadline extension because she's also trying to open a craft grow, but she still needs investors and a location. We're now three years into this struggle and we have, you know, um, no resources. So we're in a we're in a unique time right now where it's a volatile market. People are not looking at, at cannabis because they're worried about what's going to happen in a recession. It's another sign that in this industry, money rules almost everything. We talked to Reese Xavier about that a few months ago. The CEO and managing partner of HT23 Growers in South Suburban Chicago Heights says he's gotten some attention lately, but he's acting like there is no extension. I'm of the opinion that you can't take your foot off the gas, whether it's an extension or not, because what will happen is if you take your foot off the gas, you stop pressing for those funds, you stop pressing to get all the things that you need in place to become operational. The year goes by like that. I got my license in 2021. It feels like yesterday. Xavier expects his project to cost around $9 million. He's trying to convert a vacant strip mall into a complex with a grow facility, a dispensary, a kitchen, and a consumption lounge. He's building out slowly as he waits for money from the state to come in, which he's confident will. In the meantime, he wants to talk to state lawmakers. He doesn't think craft cannabis license holders are involved enough in charting a path forward. I can sit down, I can tell you every hurdle I've been through to date, and I'm confident there'll be a lot more. I can sit down and tell you all the challenges that we receive financially. No one has better experience and knowledge about that than the folks who are going through it. Most craft cannabis license holders, including almost everyone at the South Shore Cultural Center, are still going through it, and that will continue for the foreseeable future. There may be a little breathing room now with the deadline extension, but without money and legislative fixes, soon the relief will be short-lived. I'm Alex Dagman. And that is Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton with story help today from WGLT's Ryan Denham, Charlie Schlenker, and Eric Stock, as well as IPR's Alex Stegman. The show produced by Samantha Hill. This is 89.1 FM, WGLT, and WGLT.org. Bloomington Normal's public media, part of the NPR network.